Thank you, Jordan, for uh, leading us this far. And with that beautiful doxology that we have just sung. If you can open your Bibles to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we will uh, pick up at verse 7. And we'll read right through to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to 18. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond a measure, that is, in other man's labours, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be, within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. This is a very difficult passage of scripture. Matter of fact, the whole last four chapters are very difficult. And um, I was just speaking to Alex earlier. Grammatically, it's difficult. And just the way Paul writes, it's difficult. Because he uses a literary composition which is called irony. Matter of fact, he's downright sarcastic in a lot of these uh, portions of scripture, but sarcastic in a righteous sort of way. He uses this irony to get his point across, and so if you can understand that, it'll sort of help you to uh, get to the point of the message. Going into Kurong Bookshop, as I know many of you do from time to time, and I also frequent Kurong, but whenever I go there, I kind of shake my head at the glut of books that flood the market. And on top of that, most of them from authors we wouldn't even know from a bar of soap. 
And the reality is that they all have something to say on how we should live, what method we should be using for life in the home, in the workplace, in relationships, in the church. And to boot, it's very profitable, some. Now, I've no problem with books. If you go into my office, you'll see I've got a few myself. But what concerns me is, how can we be discerning about the spiritual credibility and authority of these men and women who write the books? How do we know that their leadership in this ministry is all about glorifying God by being faithful to the Scriptures in order to build up the saints? How can we be sure that that's happening and that's on their agenda? Or the question can be coined like this. What spiritual authority or credibility do they have behind the leadership that they're taking in their writing ministry? The answer is we haven't a clue. We don't know. And more than likely, we know precious little about these authors, which gives us no room for good, honest discernment, right? So we take a stab. Or maybe we read the back part that tells us a little bit about the author. This is why the local church, rather than the bookshop or website sermons, should be the primary environment for spiritual growth. you get that? Some of us are talking a little bit about this later, earlier in our theology class. For the local church should be and needs to be a spiritual home where you and its leadership are held accountable to one another and by one another. And this is one of the reasons I love the local church family, the setting. Because what happens in a local church setting as we have here, you open yourself up, you expose yourself to authentic evaluation whereby you can accurately and honestly discern credible and godly leadership as it is in action. A whole lot more than you can do by reading a book or reading someone's resume, right? So in other words, it's vital to evaluate an author, a pastor, an elder, a leader, before you invest, before you invest the health and well-being, listen to this, the health and well-being of your souls to their care and nurture. Now this same principle for discerning and evaluating goes for any leader, I might say. And every one of us fit into this leadership category at some level. So no one escapes here. No believers here this morning escape this. You fathers, you're leaders in your home. You mothers, you have a leadership role in bringing up your children and and in their nurture. Single people in the eyes of those younger ones watching you. Little do you know, you younger ones, especially singles and teenagers, they become heroes of the younger. You're leaders. Leaders in different church ministry. We are all leaders that need to be measured, that need to be measured and are measured for our spiritual influence and faithfulness in the ministry. That's what it comes down to. 
And this is what Paul here commands and expects the Corinthians to do toward him and to do of him and his team. He defends his apostleship as a messenger of God. And he defends his integrity in that ministry. Now, as we mentioned last week, the first nine chapters, what Paul generally does, he pours his heart out to the repentant majority and pleads for their ongoing love to the Lord and to himself and to their loyalty. He pleads for that. But in these last four chapters, he speaks primarily, as I said before, with heaps of irony to the small group of unrepentant malcontents who continue to niggle away and attack him. You see, they had thrown and were still throwing, even though the majority were repentant and had returned to the Lord and had returned in their love and loyalty to the apostle. This minority group had thrown a lot of malicious mud around about Paul and Paul knew, like we all do, that some mud always sticks, right? And so Paul needs to, for the gospel's sake, defend himself in the ministry. And so he does this by making an opening statement, which we see here in verse 7, which kind of, I believe, the rest of the section that we've read this morning, it kind of hangs on. It's like a coat hanger. And this statement says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Now, I'll just stop right there. Because some of our English translations, I believe, have got this down better than others. New American Standard hasn't. ESV. For those who've got the ESV, nail this properly. Because what they do is they put it down as a command rather than a statement of fact. Because it's a sta- how we have it here, you are looking at things outwardly, can be taken as a statement of fact. But ESV nails it properly. And what it reads is, look at what is before your eyes. It's a command. It's in the imperative form. The NIV, by the way, also has a footnote. If you look at your footnotes of your NIV Bibles, they've got it right as well. But I like how J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation. This is what he says. It says, look at the things that stare you in the face. That kind of puts it in real colloquial language, right? In other words, Paul commands, he charges his readers, including us today, to come to an accurate conclusion about himself and his ministry based on observable facts. That's what he's saying here. And so from here on after, he gives the facts. And he says, now make up your mind. But that's good advice for many areas of life, isn't it? You know, dealing with observable facts always gives a person better insight and ability to discern the counterfeit, the shams, the imposters from the faithful and true and authentic, right? It always does when we deal with the facts. We can easily deal with hearsay, but quite often we could come up with a very wrong conclusion. 
Years ago when counterfeit money was a problem, I hear it was a bit of a problem down at our local Adelaide show the other day. There was a few $50 bills getting passed around that were counterfeit. But years ago um, when counterfeit money was a problem because of the days you never had a card, everything was in cash, um, there was a whole training group that were there, they were made available, they were in, in, in vogue, that uh, needed to check out money that was supposedly counterfeit. You know, and you know how they trained these people? How they trained them was that they spent hours and hours and hours of having money, the real authentic cash, the notes, right before their eyes and they actually felt them. And so the idea was the more familiar they came with the real deal, the counterfeit notes became more obvious. That's how they did it. And that's what Paul is doing here in this section. Look at what is right before your eyes and then you can come up with an honest conclusion. So what were they to look at? They would look at Apostle Paul. The authentic, true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he encourages them to examine himself. For them to examine him. To look at him. To look at how he acted. To look at how he preached. To look at what he did and what he didn't do. And by doing that, the false apostles and teachers and those malcontents would be easily exposed. How we need discernment today, folks. How we need discernment today when we are flooded. The world is flooded. The church is flooded with hucksters and con artists and shams that play off as the real deal. We need to discern who are the wolves in sheep's clothing as the picture on the screen depicts. We need to be discerning about those who shepherd us and we need to be discerning about your leadership in whatever sphere that may be. Well, Paul puts himself on display here as the authentic leader with divine authority. And so he is our model. This is what the angle I'm going to take this morning. So he is our model to measure ourselves and to emulate in the different spheres of our leadership. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at several marks of an authentic leader or a godly leader. And the first mark of an authentic godly leader is that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we see this in the second part of verse 7 of our text this morning. You know, it's amazing how many gullible people follow leaders purely drawn by their powerful persona or their charisma, or their rhetoric, and their ability to persuade and to move people, you know. I always get staggered when I see documentaries about men like Mussolini and Hitler and, 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 and these powerful worldly figures and gullible people get sucked in and they follow them and treat them like God. And, yeah, they've got something that draws people. Well, it's a real sad day, and it has been, as you would know, when that kind of persuasion hits the church. It's downright dangerous. People get so caught up in the hype that they tend to forget the most important factor of a leader who has been entrusted to care for their souls. They forget about that. What they end up doing is they forget about the relationship with Jesus Christ as being the, the primary 
necessity for their leader. They end up sacrificing a leader's vital credibility of being in relationship with Jesus Christ. It becomes secondary. And so Paul's critics in Corinth, by the way, they were religious people. They weren't atheists. They weren't evolutionists. They weren't kind of the enemy as far as many of those religious things were. They believed in God. They believed in Yahweh. As a matter of fact, here they were claiming greater credibility than the Apostle Paul. They were claiming a greater credibility in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what that was based on is probably a little bit of supposition, but it seems to be that maybe they had heard Jesus Christ preach. Paul hadn't. Maybe they had had some personal interaction with Jesus themselves where the Apostle Paul hadn't. That was their claim to fame, so to speak. So how does Paul handle this? Note verse 7, that Paul does not contradict their claim or relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't come out and say, no way, no way, you're not a Christian. No way, you can't be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that. He doesn't challenge their claim. He doesn't fight them on this. All he says is, if anyone has confidence in himself that he is Christ, in the end of verse, so also are we. You see that? In other words, be as confident in yourself about this relationship all you like. But we too are also confident. There's a bit of irony in here. In other words, confidence in yourself really does not mean a thing. But what your confidence is based on, that means a powerful lot. You see, this response to their claim... It emphasizes the subjectivity of their claim. In other words, Paul implies having confidence in yourself is one thing, but is that all you've got? Where's the evidence? Where is the track record? Where are the converts? Where are the established churches? Where is the growing churches? And Paul chides the self-confidence over a personal, intimate relationship through faith. Consider again within himself. He chides this perhaps one person whom he was directing his conversation to. In other words, look at what is right before your eyes. Look at the facts. If you wish to, and I ask you to, look at my relationship, my claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then look at the facts and look at what it has produced. So Paul was implying here, do not rely and place your confidence in mere subjective personal conviction. What about the evidence? We don't like that sometimes, do we? We like to think that our faith is a very personal thing between us and God and, and there's nothing else. You know, As soon as we hear faith plus something else, we think, oh, no, 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 it's gone wrong. And so you get a lot of professing Christians who say, yes, I'm a Christian, but where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Allow the facts, Paul says, of my observable relationship with Jesus Christ to speak for themselves. That's what he's saying here. Well, I wonder if our relationship to Jesus Christ speaks for itself.
That's a question, isn't it? Folks, the fundamental question in leadership is, do we belong to Christ? We need to answer that question. Then following hard behind that is, is my relationship with Jesus Christ giving observable evidence? One doesn't go without the other. Does my life endorse and confirm my personal relationship with him? Back in the same book, in chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? This means that our lives should now reflect something of his beauty and his grace as we learn to live like the Lord. It will be endorsed. Our new life in Christ will be endorsed. It will be confirmed. Jesus said this in Matthew seven sixteen: You will know them by their fruits. Listen to this. You will know them by their fruits... Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. I love that. I love that. I'd get a real shock if my grapevines at home produced peaches. I would rip those things out if they did. Yeah, you expect grapes to produce grapes and figs to produce figs, right? And anyone who is in personal relationship with Jesus Christ will produce righteousness in different ways and forms, they will live and become more and more like Jesus Christ. There will be evidence. So leaders belonging to Christ will evidence this new personal relationship. And secondly, godly leaders will have a positive influence in the church. We see this in verse 8. You know, it's really sad when professing believers have no impact for good in the local church. That is, it's really sad. And you do get some who are orthodox in their belief, They have this confidence in themselves that they are okay. And yet precious little input is ever seen for the building up of the church. It's sad if you know people like that. It seems that the authority status of being in relationship to the Lord is all tuckered out and empty. I like how A.W. Tozer put this once. You can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but as empty as one spiritually. Yet the true believer has the full authority of Jesus Christ to make disciples, to teach all that he's commanded us. That's that's our authority, right? That's our authority base, right? Our personal relationship to the Lord has his eternal blood-brought children and he has given them every authority which should motivate us to be involved at some level in this mission. At some level, the godly leader will have a positive influence on the building up of the saints. That's a fact of Christian life. That's our boast. That's our rightful claim. We will be involved at some level. Well, Paul could boast in the authority he had, which was based on his relationship with the Lord. You see, Paul was a builder. He was a builder. He was now motivated to to edify, uh, to plant and to preach and to serve, and even when required to suffer, which he did many times. He, he, He was motivated to comfort and to counsel. What for? For the building you up and not for destroying you. Do you see that in our text? 
In other words, he would not be put to shame, it says here, by anything that tore down, weakened or caused division. He would not go there. He was a shepherd, like the Lord was toward his people. Paul was a shepherd. And his positive influence on the church was the exact opposite to what these wolves in sheep's clothing and those who followed them were doing, exact opposite. He was a genuine leader whose divine authority went all out to have a positive, strengthening impact on the Lord's church. Now, folks, we're in relationship to the Lord, right? What kind of impact or influence are you having in this church? This is an important question because if we're not in the business of strengthening the church by using our different gifts and abilities and availability... We're a burden. We're actually become a weight that pulls it down. Some of us are talking this morning, what does it mean to be encouragement? I find great encouragement in the fact that you're here. I find great encouragement with our musicians who, who lead us in worship and play those instruments so well. Sitting beside me in church is a great encouragement. You don't have to be up here or any other in-your-face kind of ministry. There's many ways that we can build up the church. So we need to see that a godly leader will have a positive influence in their local church. And thirdly, we see that they are consistent in word and deed. We see this in verses 9 to 11. The charge against Paul here was that he was a hypocrite. That's what they were calling him out as. And so they were, they were saying that there's a discrepancy between, between how he wrote his letters and how he was when he was with them in person, which we touched on last Sunday. And they even here gives us some indication of how far and how malicious this mud that they were throwing at, how bad it was. They were saying that his, his, his whole personal demeanour, his personal charisma and ability to communicate in his preaching was way below par of what an apostle should be. And so they were measuring him by these external things. And so they said, therefore, he is ineffective. They charged him with being overly severe by trying to intimidate the people, the people of God, into obeying him through his letters. But that was not Paul's goal. Paul's goal in writing the letters, it wasn't to intimidate them. Or it wasn't his goal to intimidate them in his preaching. He had one consistent goal in mind. He went all out to bring them to repentance so that they might experience the ongoing blessings in their lives which is a complement to salvation. I love the Lord's blessing. I love waking up in the morning and saying, thank you Lord, you have allowed me to see another day. I love the wonderful truth that we can sing here. His mercies are renewed every morning. I love looking up into the heavens and saying, what an awesome God you are. I love looking into the word of truth 
and saying, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to understand your word and written in the language I can understand. I love that. that these are blessings, right? These are blessings that Paul wanted to encourage the people of God to enjoy. It complements salvation. Salvation is not a, a one-stop shop deal. It's something that begins and we grow and grow and grow. And Paul wanted to see them do that. He was consistent in that one idea and that one longing. And so he appeals here to all the people in Corinth, I believe including those who really knew him, those who had been with him right from the beginning, those who had come to Christ under his preaching, and those who had been with him when he ministered there, remember, for a whole year and a half, he poured his soul into the church at Corinth. And so he maintains that there was no contradiction between his preaching and his writing. And he says in verse 11, what we say by letters when absent, we do when present. Yes, his letters were bold. Some of his letters were bold. We, we, we have indication of that, that he wrote a severe letter. Chapter 3 of this book tells us that. We don't have that on canonical record. But he's, he wrote a letter and he talks about writing a severe letter. letter and, and he says about that letter, um, in essence he says in chapter 3, When I wrote that letter, it was so painful for me that I wept. My tears were driven by my love for you. That is why I had to say hard things. Let's paraphrase. But that's basically what it said in chapter 3. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 14 of this second epistle, Paul makes it clear that no one, no one can separate his personal life from his ministry to them. He was consistent in word and deed. This is what he said. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. That's what he wrote right back in chapter 1 of this epistle. Let's ask ourselves here, being spiritual leaders at some level, are we consistent, am I consistent with who we are, who I am in Christ, in what we say and in what we do? Paul was open to the scrutiny of God and to men and was able to defend his ministry. Can we do that? He says in this 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. My leadership, folks, your leadership calls for genuine authenticity and transparency because why? We are scrutinized by both men and God. Does that concern you? Well, it should. If you're not too worried about men scrutinizing you, you should be concerned to take it up with the fact that God scrutinizes you. Whether it be in the home, whether it be in the church, in your private lives, in the office, we need men and women who are consistent in word and deed. That's where our authority as leaders must stem from. That's where credible authority is discerned and can be honestly evaluated. The next section emphasizes that spiritual leaders' credentials and ministry. Um, we have this in verses 12 to 18. And we see that godly leaders refuse to measure themselves against others. Now, 
This is picked up first in verse 12. And you will know that we live in a world that breeds on the idea of comparison with others, right? Even things like keeping up with the Joneses is all behind the idea of comparing ourselves with others. And that's how standards of living and even morality are made and ethics. And what is the result of this comparison method of living is that different cultures end up making standards of their own. And these standards, as you know, are like shifting sand. But sad to say, are generally what people measure themselves by and they then live accordingly. They compare and measure themselves with their own appointed standards. And and this is what Paul's opponents in the Corinthian church were doing. They were measuring themselves by their own appointed standards. Now, Paul refuses to do that. He would not stoop to the level of self-aggrandizement based on subjective and external superficial abilities. He would not do that. He said, we are not bold to class or compare, or we would not dare do that. That's what he's saying here. He would not stoop to use their comparison and measuring methods in order to promote himself as a leader with credibility. Now, we have lots of that happening in the church, said to say, folks. Paul here rebukes that and he calls these guys out and says, if you do that, you're without understanding. You know, many pastors and churches fall into this trap in trying to be successful and they'll measure themselves and compare themselves and they say, I want to be successful like such and such or this church or that group. And so what are they doing that we're not doing? And so they'll tweak and change and shift, measure themselves by themselves. Folks, we at NCC have a measure. We have a standard already set to follow. May it be that we never play follow the leader, right? Follow the leader with anyone, any church, any new fad, any new author, any new method. Let us only ever measure and compare ourselves with the Lord and his word. For that is who and what that every single one of us and the leadership of this church and this church as a whole will be held accountable to. Godly leaders also welcome ministry evaluation. We see this in verses 13 and 16. You know, from time to time I see advertised pastoral positions that come across my screen. And they often cringe at the extensive expectations of some churches. They don't want a pastor, they want a superman. Well, Paul was no superman who could do everything. Paul admitted his limitations. You might think, Paul, limitations? Yeah, he admits that here. He refused to make any claims to be a leader beyond the area of leadership, beyond the area of ministry that God had cut out for him. He refused to move into those areas. He says, For we will not boast beyond the measure of the sphere which God appointed to us. That's what this means. In other words, he would not, like the false prophets were doing, he would not promote himself and then move into areas that were beyond the will of God for him. He would not do that. 
He was like the sprinter that we have seen at the Olympic Games who stick to his or her lane. And each one of us, folks, every one of us has a lane to run in, spiritually speaking. And my lane is not your lane and your lane is not my lane. And here we see that God has assigned Paul, what does he do? To reach even you. That's what it means here, to reach even you. This was Paul's assignment. This was his lane. This was no other apostle's assignment. And, and certainly not the assignment of the false teachers like they seem to think it was. His lane was marked by God all the way to Corinth. You read that in Acts 18. Paul knew what he had to do and then measured his ministry by the standard that God had applied and set before him. He didn't intrude into territory and areas of ministry assigned to others like the false teachers had. He did not try and steal credit like the false teachers were doing from what others had done in the ministry. He was God's appointed man to preach and plant and establish a church there. This happens, you know. Stealing credit. I always remember once, many years ago, I was introduced to a number of people as um, being the pastor of New Community Church and then they went on and they raved and that Jeff planted this church and they went on and one was responsible for establishing the church and they went on. I was tempted to leave it there. I'm getting some real good street cred here. A church planter, yeah, that's me. I couldn't let it go. I had to put it right. I, wasn't, I didn't want to steal any credit. Matter of fact, I never started this church. For a start, the Lord planted this church. But the Lord used another man and other people, Sharon being one of them, to begin and start this church before I was ever here. And so I put it straight. You see, so many people will write on the back of what others have done. And so the false teachers here in Corinth were all about creating a personal following on the back of Paul's gospel-appointed work. That was their plan. That was a goal. And that's what many church leaders doing, sad to say. They want to create a following. They want to become famous. How sad that is. But Paul's goal, his hope, was that the Corinthians would what? Would be grow, would grow and be strengthened in the faith. Why? This is good. We need to look at this. Why, why, why did he have this hope? That they might grow and be strengthened in the faith, which we see in verse 15. What does it say? We will, uh, not boasting on a measure that is in other man's labors, but with a hope that as your faith grows. That was his hope. That was his goal. But why was that? The rest of the verse says, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. You see that? Paul knew what he had to do and then he measured his ministry by the standard that God had applied and set before him. And here was this hope that he had of the Corinthians growing. Why? So that through their assistance, through their coming together, through their... Their, uh, their love for the Lord and their love for the gospel and their love for the truth and through their strengthening unity, they might reach out through him so that he can reach further than Corinth itself. 
In other words, so that the gospel might be enlarged. Now folks, what we see here is Paul's practice in ministry exposed. This is philosophy of ministry, if you want to put it that way, in more technical terms. It's on display for his original readers and for us to learn and evaluate from. And we can learn from this that one man cannot and is not to do everything. That's what one thing we can learn. He wasn't going to stay at Corinth forever. He had his lane cut out for him and he was a preacher of the gospel and an apostle and so he, he was looking further in the field because there was more souls to be saved. We also learn that every believer is uniquely gifted. We can learn from this for building up the church and it is their privilege and responsibility to get on with the task. We also learn that our ministry is not a means to an end just for the church. In other words, the ministry of this church is not about just making us all fat and happy. Spiritually speaking, it's not a means to an end. Our ministry is so that the borders of our ministry might be enlarged and be influential in regions beyond us in the gospel. We are leaders at some level or other, folks. And godly leaders will value and welcome evaluation. So to focus on the ministry the Lord has given us. So if our ministry is to be enlarged and uh, we need to be evaluated for that, that's what godly leaders love and, and go in for. What should be the overall goal of the authentic godly leader? Overall goal should be that they desire only God's approval. We see this in verses 17 and 18. And so what these two verses do here is they summarize leaders' overall purpose and longing in their ministry setting. So it's just not how cool a Sunday school class you can have and, and how big a church we can have and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's just not about that. It's good to have a big Sunday school class. It's good to see the church growing numerically and spiritually. It is good, but it's not the overall goal. The truly godly leader will only ever receive divine recommendation, divine commendation, I should say, when they give all the glory to God. You got that? Self-approval, self-commendation, is unacceptable before God, even commendation from men. Solomon wisely said this in Proverbs 27 verse 2, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. There's so many people who would self-promote I remember when I first came to this church, I was asked to write a CV. I was most embarrassed. And so I just, in the Lord, and uh, put a few things. And, and uh, it was a class we took at ACM, actually, and I uh, had to write one. And, but I was very embarrassed having to write about myself, of what I had done, what I hadn't done, and what I could do, what I believed I couldn't. It was very, very embarrassed. I, I just felt like I was self-promoting myself. You know, that's what you've got to do, right? You've got to sell yourself. That's what the world says. You apply for a job. You've got to sell yourself. Man, you've got to put it down there, right? Otherwise, you won't get a job. Sad to say, that's brushed off in the church. 
And it becomes the end all end all. People mostly brag by comparing themselves with others, but if they stopped and contrasted themselves, folks, if we stopped and contrasted ourselves with God, you know what? There would be a whole lot more trembling at his awesomeness and at his word than there is. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing in ourselves. You know, Jeremiah rightly said this is in a favorite, one of the favorite texts in the Bible. Jeremiah said this in nine, chapter 9, 24. Let him who boasts boast in this and that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices uh, steadfastness, love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Therefore let our boast be only in what God has done for us, in us, and through us. Amen? For it is only those leaders who will be approved by God. Any other approval by the world or by man is of no significance when compared to the future and eternal approval of God. Because that's what's going to come down. I do trust these six marks of God-approved leaders will help you discern the true leader from the false and may we even evaluate ourselves in this situation in the light of this divine plumb line seen in the apostle for our edification and for God's eternal glory. Amen. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we do give thanks this morning for your word. Well, Lord, it delights our heart to know that when we open the pages and read it, that we have your truth, your mind, your will right before our eyes. Oh, Father, we thank you for the faith. We thank you for the new heart that you have given us, whereby we can see and know your word as absolute truth, instruction for living, and how to be declared and the only way of being made righteous in your sight, and also the only way to live. Oh Lord, we just thank you that we can read this. Help us, challenge us, continue to work in us, so that, Father, our faith might not be empty, as it were, but may be motivated and have a longing to live like our Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we give thanks unto the Lord Jesus himself who has done all things for us. Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for an ever and ever Amen.